Well, hello, everybody, and welcome again to another edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. My name is, uh, is Andrew Young. Um, we're recording this on, on April the 2nd, 2022, and I'm joined again by the publisher of Econ Weekly, Jay Shabit. Hello, Jay. Hi, Andrew. Tell me, um, what's, uh, what's your week been like? Well, uh, yeah, very busy <laughs> in terms of, uh, yeah, what's been going on in the economy. Just a lot of, a lot of new data to, that, that were, was released by, uh, you know, different government agencies last week. Uh, and I guess we can just get right into it. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say, absolutely. I think it's, we've been hit by uh, at least three major kind of uh, releases of information and reports uh, this this past week so yeah let's let, let's let's take it away yeah so probably the biggest one is uh, the jobs report which the department of labor uh, their bureau of labor statistics um publishes monthly that's always closely watched by uh, everyone in the economy including all the big players on wall street and the latest report for march was was another good one the economy created four hundred thirty one thousand new jobs and that was after 750,000 in February. It's a revised number, um, 500,000 in January. So it was just a really good first quarter for job creation. Um, there's just really uh, no, there's no, there's no ambiguity here. The, the job market is super, super, super hot. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a great, you know, if you're looking for a job, you're, you're going to find one. Um, uh, is assuming that, uh, you know, one of the issues now is that um, a lot of these jobs are going unfilled because the people don't either have the right skills for them or a lot of people are kind of still on the sidelines who may have been working before the pandemic but have decided not to look for work. Um, perhaps they're retiring early or there's a whole bunch of issues that were very prevalent during the pandemic, including childcare issues and health issues and whatnot. A lot of, a lot of those latter issues are subsiding um, with the, you know, as the pandemic sort of ends here, um, it's no longer, you know, the, the, there are a lot fewer people reporting that they're not looking for a job because of health issues. So that's definitely a good thing. Um, there, there is still uh, a, um, what we call the participation rate. So that's the number. If you add the number of people that are actually the percentage of people that are um, that are either working or actively looking for work, we call it the participation rate. That's still below what it was pre-pandemic, and it may never quite fully come back. It has been getting. It's better than it was a year ago or a year and a half ago, but it may never quite you know get back to where it was. It, it's a statistic that's just been trending down for uh, really two decades now. And a big reason is simply that a, a much larger percentage of the American population is uh, over 65 years old or in, or in retirement age. Um, so those people um, are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not working anymore. They're not looking for. So that's, um, that's just kind of a structural issue. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in fact, uh, this, aspect of, of America's demographic profile is a very important one. Um, we are an aging society. That's true of a lot of advanced economies, Japan, Europe as well, uh, and, and China as well. Um, the 
we have we have a statistic that um, that I mentioned the issue this week um, from someone from J.P. Morgan said that the uh, the number of twenty year olds, um, which you know you can imagine is important subset of workers for lower wage jobs, you know, people just entering the workforce, mm-hmm. um, working, you know, at restaurants, leisure and hospitality. The number of 20 year olds in America was growing by 50,000 per month a decade ago. It's now declining by 50,000 a month. Um, wow. we also have, yeah, we also have a situation in the last decade or, or during the 2010s, um, the number of Americans under 18 actually shrank. So that's, it's, we've had the, the total population grew. Um, it was the slowest growth in American history, uh, but the number of 18 actually declined. So we have some real demographic challenges. And so when we're talking about, when we look at these labor uh, market statistics, we have to kind of keep that in the back of our mind. Demographic yeah, is really shaping the labor market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned this is structural um, issues. Um, and I think there's, there's multiple layers. I mean, one is literally the absolute number of people that could potentially be in the workforce um, because an aging population. But I think uh, you made this point as well, and I guess it, it tends to happen in a, in a tight jobs market, or it, it emphasizes it, that there is jobs, but they require certain skills um, and they are in certain locations, which doesn't necessarily match where the supply is. And um, and then on, on top of that, we've had a very unusual two-year period where people either lost their jobs or were given options of working with different types of, you know, a, a different kind of approach to work. It might be two days in the office or part-time even. And I think there's become a bit more of a demand for that type of flexibility and maybe the workforce, well, maybe the employers perhaps need to catch up a little bit in terms of looking at, well, you know, maybe we need to just be, make ourselves more attractive uh, to a slightly more demanding or the workforce that's looking for some more flexibility. Um, yeah. That I, I have no statistics or evidence on that, but I mean, um, I kind of, you know, anecdotally, you see people really kind of looking for, a different different type of employment um, uh, scenarios. Right. Yeah. Companies do need to be more responsive to, to what workers are looking for, especially in very competitive fields where, you know, that require high skill, but not nowadays really in all fields, but, but, but sure. I mean, if you're, yeah, if you want to attract a really great software engineer, that person is probably going to have a lot of options. So, you know, if, if the uh, predominant, mood is is well we want to work from home or we want to you know be in the office one or two days a week only then yeah employers kind of have to adapt to that um it's it's really is a uh you know kind of a a a buyer's market so to speak in terms of uh you know labor being able to demand certain things that they might not if, if the job market was weaker um also you know in terms of geography too it's important you know we talked about last week how people are uh, having trouble moving to places where they can get new jobs because the housing prices are so high. Yes. Yes. We talked about that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's an issue too. Um, you see companies like Amazon, interestingly, spending a lot of money uh, building new houses, or I don't know if it's, they're directly doing it, but they're certainly providing money to organizations that are building houses in places like 
their hometown, Seattle, California. So that that's another issue uh, or another thing that employers can do or, or could do to try to mitigate the situation of the labor shortage. Well, um, I see that's, that's an interesting echo from the, the industrial revolution, you know, kind of the company towns where yeah. the, the steel mills and uh, mines used to actually build all the housing around there because uh, there was nothing there before. Um, right, right. And if you go, yeah, it's interesting. If you go to China today, you'll still see a lot of, uh, you know, big industrial sites um, right on the site. You'll see all sorts of fabric, you know, kind of uh, simple uh, houses um, set up almost like apartment blocks that are, uh, you know, kind of cheaply put together, but just to house the workers. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think we've, you know, kind of gone that far back, back to the, uh, the corporate town era, but, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some mm. corporate money being put into housing. Um, so yeah, that's the other, the other thing that, you know, companies really need to do to adjust to, to, to some of these new realities is, uh, you know, if, if it's true that America is getting older, which it is, um, you know, we're just a much more, uh, senior heavy population then, you know, it's important to accommodate uh, seniors who may want to work, um, but can under certain conditions, you know, maybe, uh, you know, there's just, there's things they can do to, to be more friendly to that population. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, I mean, a, a part-time work for one, and, yes. and obviously, you know, I mean, automation is taking a lot of physical um, aspects out of many jobs these days, which which is good. That does allow a diversification of the workforce, whether it's through age or sex, or even you know even ability. People with impaired ability can now do jobs that wouldn't have been able to do before. Um, so you know there are some potential upsides for the for the you know the pool in of labour available. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, yeah, just moving on to the other uh, kind of big report of the week was uh, another inflation report. This one's uh, called the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure. So there's the, the Labor Department one, which is called the CPI, Consumer Price Index. That one is maybe a little more closely watched. And that one showed uh, in February, March, uh, what was it, 7.9% inflation annual, year over year. Uh, so the PCE, that's the one that's done by the Commerce Department. And that one last week, showed a little bit milder, it was 6.4%. Uh, that one is actually preferred by the Federal Reserve. It's the one that they look at. Um, it's it just, you know, you can ask what's the difference. It just assigns different weights to different expenditure items. So I think housing is a little more uh, heavily weighted in the CPI versus the PCI, I believe, I believe that's correct. Uh, so it's, you know, pick, pick whichever one you like, but bottom line is that inflation is running, uh, you know, very, very, very high. And that's the whole reason why the Fed is getting more aggressive about raising interest rates. If you recall, at their last meeting in March, they raised short-term rates, their short-term rate target by a quarter point. And I think the consensus now among forecasters is that they're going to do a point, a half point hike at their next meeting. So, and subsequent hikes thereafter. So clearly we're getting, you know, on a, on a tighter, um, tighter policy stance. Now, what's that going to do to the economy? We talked a little bit about that last week is, you know, is that going to hurt the economy or is, is it just going to do the trick of stemming inflation without 
damaging the economy or will it frankly do nothing, you know, which, which is, which is a plausible theory because remember this is a lot of this is supply side inflation and there's not a whole lot that higher interest rates can do, can yes. do for, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, creating more semiconductors or, or, uh, you know, making the trains uh, have more capacity, whatever. So that's, or, yeah, um, or, or create more people. Yeah. <laughs> so, or create, yeah. yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Going back to our right previous uh, topic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we need so, and any new nurses or truck drivers. Exactly. And, and, and there is a bit of a link to the, you know, the, the jobs report as well, of course, that showed that, you know, earnings are still continuing to grow as in, you know, salaries, um, but not as high as kind of even the PCE um, increases that we're seeing, never mind the, the uh, C, C, CPI is the uh, uh, there's, Yeah, C, CPI and the PCE, right? Yeah. I know, too many, it's like alphabet soup here. It's <laughs> Too many, too many letters. Well, but why, the, yeah. why have one measure when you can have two? Right, right, right. yeah. That's uh, <laughs> uh, the your point though is is correct in that wages are rising, but not as fast as inflation. So that so real incomes, real meaning inflation adjusted, real incomes are in fact declining now. Um, now you know that's going to depend. Uh, every every individual or individual family is different. If you're you know, depending on what you're, if you're not buying a car right now, you're in better shape than if you are buying one. Um, you know, certain, certain items are rising in price more than others. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the overall um, trend for the, for the whole economy is that, yeah, in, incomes are, real incomes are actually declining by a bit. And um, the question is, is it affecting spending? Because consumer spending, you know, people going out and, and, and buying stuff, that's a, that's a really, that's the engine of the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. and is so every you know that's when that starts to starts to falter, then you know you're in trouble. With um, so the question is, is it? And not really. I mean, there the, the latest report, um, the 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 same PC um, report also includes um, you know actual data on aggregate spending and. Uh, it was it was up a little bit uh, month to month. It was up, I think, 0.2% from February to March. Um, that's not inflation adjusted, but uh, so people are, you know, they're people, they're still spending, they're getting less for what they for what they spend, but they're they're, you know, I don't think there's any huge concern yet that uh, Americans are, you know, closing, they're they're not break, taking out their wallets anymore. That's that's it's still still okay. Yes, yes. And and I guess, yeah, on the topic of still okay, I think better than okay was probably the the conclusion from the the other report that came out today from the Bureau of uh, Economic Analysis. Am I cor- I'm correct in the BEA? Yeah, yeah. And that's the same. Um, yeah, that's also part of the Commerce Department, same group that publishes the PC, the consumption expenditure. So they, they kind of gave updated figures on GDP, the gross domestic product. And GDP is just the measure of everything that's created in the economy, all the goods and services, what the value is. And they, uh, yeah, and that's the, we don't have the first quarter numbers yet, too early for that, but fourth quarter of 2021 um, was was very strong. And uh, what was, do I have the number in front of me here? Uh, 6.9%, I think I, I 
That was for Q4, right, right, Q4, exactly. Yeah, and that's an annual rate, Q4, 6.9%. And that was better than the 2.3% in Q3. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, it was a very, very strong fourth quarter. Q1 should be okay, too. I mean, it should be pretty strong, too. Uh, the, there was the Omicron wave that sort of, you know, depressed things for, for a little while there, but I think Q1 is strong, but bottom line is the economy is very strong. It's very, it's, it's growing. Uh, and, um, the, yeah, the GDP numbers clearly, clearly showed that, uh, interestingly, Andrew's home state of Texas was the fastest growing state economy in the fourth quarter. Um, for all of 2021, it didn't nothing too spectacular. I think it was number 19 um, of the 50 states, and that's mostly because Texas has a you know big energy sector, and the energy sector uh, did very poorly for most of 2021. Then it picked up in Q4, and of course, <laughs> of course, right now in 2022, um, the energy sector is uh, you know just exploding. <laughs> it's just it's firing on all cylinders. Um, but yeah, the, during Q4, Texas had a 10% GDP growth. So you had energy starting to come back. And of course, Texas is just a place where, you know, you have these incredibly booming cities like Austin and Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston, and even San Antonio, uh, where you have just all these people that are moving there. So GDP growth is definitely be- benefits from population growth. And then also the IT sector, which is a big uh, contributor contributor to U.S. economic growth. Um, a lot of that is happening in Texas as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, it's interesting you say how en- the energy aspect really has kind of driven Texas's kind of performance, but there is a huge focus on diversification in the state. I mean, the, the, the energy, particularly the oil side, is not going anywhere, and it is great to see, you know, the growth of that. Um, for the state, but uh, it is also fantastic that you know that it's being underpinned by other other sectors as well. Um, you're right. We uh, there is a lot of bo- a lot of booming going on within within Texas at the moment. But but also, I mean, I noticed in that BEA report um, there are there seems to be kind of this this good news across the board. I mean, um, Nevada, I noticed, which of course from an entertainment perspective, which that state is so highly dependent on, obviously with Las Vegas, um, really suffered terribly during the um, the pandemic period. Uh, nobody traveling, obviously gaming and all the shows, all the conferences that take place there. And that was also showing real signs of a, of a rebound um, in Q4. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, for all of 2021, Nevada was the third fastest growing or fourth fastest growing state in the U.S. And that really, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, that reflects the comeback in tourism. Um, And that's going to be even stronger this year. I mean, by all indications, I mean, Las Vegas is currently really, really benefiting from a, a, you know, resurgent demand from, from visitors. Not yet the international visitors, though. And that's Kind of an interesting uh, that that's a place that's that's a pro- been a problem for a place like San Francisco, New York, Washington D.C. These like real big international cities, mm-hmm. Boston, uh, Los Angeles. Um, the international component is back. Hopefully that will come back. But um, you know, Nevada domestic tourism alone is is going to make a state like Nevada perform really well. So that's a good news story there. 
it, it is. Well, I, and also just just to finish off on Nevada, um, the other good news is that you know people forget Nevada's also got a lot of mining in the northern yes. part of its state and it mines a lot of those materials that are now in demand so the likes of nickel and lithium gold silver all part of the kind of the new kind of green economy um which is being developed battery development etc so hopefully they can get a little bit more diversification to protect them from any potential future shocks around the entertainment side. Right, right. No, it's, it's yeah, that's, um, in fact, in, yeah, it was originally, Nevada was originally a mining natural resources uh, state. That's why it was settled in the first place. That's why people went there back in the 19th century. And then it became, of course, with Las Vegas, a big, you know, tourist economy. But, but now the mining, as you mentioned, is, is starting to come back. Um, other thing about Nevada that's important is it is like Texas, one of those states that's receiving a lot of new uh, new new people from other states, and that's largely a cost of living thing. Now California was um, interestingly the the third um, best economy in terms of growth in for all of 2020 2021, and that's all about just the, you know, the tech firms just had a fantastic time during the pandemic. Uh, you know, all the, all the big firms, you know, the, the Googles yeah. and Apples of the world. Um, so California really, really benefited a lot. Now, California also, as I think we know, is a very, very high state becoming, you know, <laughs> higher and higher as, as time goes on. I mean, just it's, it's becoming the housing in particular is just unaffordable for most people. So there are a lot of people- High cost, moving. you mean? High cost. High, yeah. Did, yeah, did I not say high cost? Yeah, high cost. <laughs> you just said it was high, like they'd legalized all drugs or something. Oh, well, that's true too, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, okay, sorry. If I misspoke, I meant high cost. So California people are moving out um, to lower uh, places with lower cost of living like Nevada. Um, and, and Texas. Now, you know, places in Texas are coming rather expensive also. I don't know what it's like there in Dallas for you, but, I, but I've heard Austin is getting really expensive. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we have hyperinflation in the in the housing mm -hmm. sector. There's no other way to describe it. Um, yeah. And um, it, it's, you know, and it is demand coming in and also, a, you know, a shortage of supply because of the delays of the last two years and, and the current ones on supply chain, which affects construction. But I mean, even I think if we didn't have that hit on the supply, we, there's no way I think we could have. I mean, there is such an absence of uh, of 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 real estate really for for that influx. Um, I imagine it's probably similar in, in Florida as well. Um, I don't have the local anecdotal details, but I'm I'm sure you know another state which is getting a lot of influx probably yeah, well, is real, behind. Right, and real estate prices during the pandemic has gone have gone up everywhere, even places that aren't growing. Um, it's uh, well, California being one, but uh, the the growth places, uh, California. Uh, just to clarify what I just said, California is growing economically very fast, but shrinking in terms of its population. Um, but housing prices going way up there, housing prices going way up in Florida and pretty much everywhere else, um, starting to perhaps cool off now with mortgage rates going higher. But that's another story. I did um, mention that California was the third fastest growing state in terms of GDP in 2021. And we said Nevada was number four. So what's number numbers one and number two? And number one, interestingly, Tennessee. And that's just a, another place that uh, a lot of people are moving to. Nashville is a really, real big boom city. 
lot of IT jobs, huge healthcare sector, a lot of university jobs. Uh, there's just a lot going on there, um, particularly in the Nashville area. Number two, interestingly, was New Hampshire. I couldn't figure that one out. My best guess is that just a lot of people during the pandemic um, moved from Boston, the Boston Metro out across the border into New Hampshire where it's cheaper and they can telecommute. Uh, that's my best guess. I'm, I'm, I'm actually in touch with some people from New Hampshire's uh, Economic Development Department and uh, hopefully try to get some more answers about what's going on there, but it, not, not a state you associate with like super fast growth. <laughs> be definitely interesting to see. Obviously, we, you're talking percentage growth here rather than actual. Um, I'm sure New Hampshire is way down the list in terms of physical movement. Oh, sure. It's a small state, but yeah, yeah. no, in terms of, yeah, I'm talking percentage, GDP, annual, year-over-year GDP growth. Yep. Yes. So, um, I mean, just kind of, I, I suppose, divert a little bit. We talked a lot about, I, I guess, the macro. Um, one of the other interesting uh, reports that we talked about in this week's edition um, it actually comes down to companies. So if you like the, um, the commerce aspect of the, of the economy, and that the Bloomberg um, kind of report about the profitability of corporations during uh, last year. And uh, I mean, really struck by the fact that it's kind of the, well, uh, is it fair to say the most profitable since 19, the 1950s um, of corporations and, you know, a consistency of profitability, which is, uh, which has been rare. Um, I, I mean, that, that sounds like just, a stellar year um, as far as uh, organizations are concerned. Yeah, cor corporate America just had uh, a fantastic year in 2021. There are very few even industries you can think of that struggled. I mean, maybe tourism was still still down, and you know, if you were a cruise company, or, but but it's um, but Bloomberg News uh, reporting on this topic uh, mentioned that it was the most profitable year for American corporations since 1950. As you said, Andrew, um, profit margins for that's kind of collectively across the whole uh, economy. Profit margins for uh, corporations was 13%. Um, and that was true for all four quarters of the year. Uh, that's never been achieved before um, in, in the past 70 years since 1950. I think there was one, one single quarter where they had a 13% margin. Uh, what, what's going on here? What's, what's the reason? Um, I mean, I think government stimulus was a big, big part of it. I mean, the monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus really helped the consumer. So there was just a lot of spending power out there and corporations were able to take advantage of that. Some would argue that consolidation has a role. Um, over the past decade or two, a lot of companies have really, you know, um, I don't want to say eliminated competition, but, uh, but reduced the level of competitive intensity in their industries by consolidating, merging. Uh, that, that's probably helpful. That's given them a lot of pricing power. Um, and we see that pricing power now with uh, oil prices and other costs of inputs going up a lot. A lot of companies are saying that they're able to pass on those costs to the consumer with higher prices. Um, of course, labor, cost of labor is going up as well. Uh, we're going to find out more about that when companies start reporting their first quarter results in a couple of weeks now. Um, certainly during the first quarter earnings season, um, it was almost unanimous that corporate America was able to uh, apply a lot of 
pricing muscle <laughs> to the uh, problem of inflation. So they're doing just fine. And then you even see, I think last week we talked a little bit about the airlines. I mean, some of these, in the few industries that were struggling a lot, like the airlines, like the you know tourism companies, um, seem to be doing very well now. The airlines, in particular, are expecting a you know really really strong summer. So uh, it's yeah, it's it's all around um, uh, that that that's a good news story for the economy, and it's um, it's really underpinning a lot of the health of uh, of the economy now when people sort of rebut the people who, who don't believe that a recession is imminent, despite, you know, all the inflation and all the active Fed tightening that everyone is expecting. People who kind of reject that argument a recession is coming will often point to the fact that corporate America is very healthy. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm confident as well, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, when we have these clouds, you know, significant clouds on the horizon because of the conflict that's taking place in Russia. It's the first time 30 minutes into the, our discussion, we've even mentioned that, but I mean, the impact of that on oil prices, on other commodities, on, um, you know, all, all the, you know, from food through to metals and minerals, all of these kind of are, I think being referenced by most companies when they're giving their outlook for the year. But, this is not being seen, I think, as something which is going to ra- slow down what is what is an upward trend. So, um, yeah, that I think is if we are, you know, because we are facing inflationary pressure and interest rates are changing, the fact that we have such confidence within the the you know the corporations which underpin the economy, I think is is a is a good place to be. Right, right, and I'll take this moment to remind, as I always like to do, that. 20% of the American economy is healthcare. So we have a lot of, uh, <laughs> we have a lot of the economy and not all of some of that, a large part of that is government, but um, corporate America also has a large healthcare component. And that's a, uh, most of those companies are, are doing just fine. You know, despite the pandemic, they, in some, some cases, even because of it, um, a lot of uh, healthcare companies are, um, you know, are uh, as they have been, reporting, you know, perfectly, ex- perfectly healthy profits. Um, uh, yeah, uh, forgive the pun. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes exactly. yeah, the, healthy, the healthcare sector is healthy. Yes. Yes. Um, so, um, so one of the other areas that we, we, we mentioned in Econ Weekly this week was, uh, was around public transit, I guess the opposite of healthy, um, just that headline figure of ridership from, 10 billion in 2019 to less than half of that in 2020, uh, 4.7 billion um, trips or journeys. Um, I mean, obviously, it was a pandemic. Um, either services didn't operate or people kind of only used uh, transit if they were uh, an essential worker at, at cases. But the, the issue is, of course, as we know, when people stop doing something and using it um, there is often not an automatic kind of reversal back to where it was and um, I think it's fair to say that this is this is a sector which uh, which is which is facing some challenges absolutely and and uh, the the big question here is is not so much the pandemic which is for you know let's more or less finished but it's the uh, 
work from home phenomenon. You know, are people going to go back to their offices and city when we're in cities? When we're talking about public transportation, it's really concentrated in just the real big metros. You know, New York and Chicago and Washington D.C., Philadelphia. That's that's kind of where the public transit ridership is happening. Um, so now the question is, are people going to ride the New Jersey Transit from you know to, into Manhattan? Uh, anymore, or are they going to do it every day or just once a week? And that's that's the real question for these public transit um, systems. Now, yes. cut one, and just just a statistic here from the Congressional Research Service, uh, be, and this is 2019. Um, before, or, yeah, before the pandemic, 48 uh, percent of all public transit trips are on a bus. 38 percent are what they call heavy rail. And yeah, five percent by commuter rail, five percent by light rail. So it's basically it's, it's more. There's some ferries and whatnot, but it's basically 50-50 bus and train. Uh, and again, most of that is concentrated in the big cities. Yes, and, and I mean trying to find some some bright lights in this. Um, it it is something which is forcing the transit agencies, um, transportation authorities. I mean probably people realize these these are all public sector organizations um run by cities or or, or sometimes states um and um they're having to relook at kind of the way that they have their off uh, their services um i was at a conference uh this this, this past week uh, in dallas the southwestern rail conference um which is an annual event held by the texas rail um advocates and um one of the speakers there was from the Dallas area um, rapid transit uh, agency or DART. And they run all of the, the buses, the light rail, the streetcars. Um, there is some heavy rail as well that, um, that is part of their network. And um, they have just undergone a, a kind of what they call a 2045 plan. And one of the immediate things they put in place is a complete review of where they actually operate and how they do it. You know, um, more frequency, better security, actually identifying where people want to travel. So moving the bus stops that have been in the same location for probably three decades and realizing that, you know, the reason why it was there 30 years ago isn't necessarily the case now. And, you know, we spoke before about how Texas is growing. I mean, each city is also changing. Um, so the actual flows for work and for leisure are, are, as in the travel flows, are different. And I think transit agencies have maybe been a, a little bit behind the curve in terms of what they can do. I mean, where they have fixed infrastructure, such as rail, it's, it's limited. They can put, put stations in new locations if it's on the, on the route. But for buses, there is a lot of flexibility they have. You know, um, the infrastructure change, which is a bus stop or a bus shelter being moved, is very, very easy and inexpensive to do. And of course, buses are highly flexible in terms of where you're going to route them. So you don't want to do too many changes because your passengers get very confused. But uh, it's really good to see. I mean, uh, the DART area have just brought in a new executive team from the LA Metro um uh, where they'd introduced some really successful changes they've, they've really increased ridership there um and they're trying to now apply that in the in the dallas area so it's uh 
hopefully there is this fact that even if ridership doesn't come back to the levels where it was because just demand is lower, it can at least be a, a better service to the community. And, um, and I think ultimately, you know, um, we can have a transit system which fits the demand um, as, as well. Yeah, no, interesting. And then there's, you know, the question of two, the question also of the, the long distance public transport like Amtrak. And um, I know there's some high speed rail projects around the country. Um, there was just as an aside, the uh, Herb Kelleher, who was the uh, founder of Southwest Airlines, kind of legendary corporate figure. They were, uh, they were taught, there was talk about building high speed trains between Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. And, and he would say, you know what, <laughs> just give me the money because we're talking billions of dollars here and I'll just fly around everyone for free. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's always the question of, of rail being a very expensive investment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits to it for sure, environmental and so, and so on, um, and can, can be very convenient for people, uh, particularly in, in denser urban environments. Uh, but, uh, but Amtrak has, you know, had a, um, that's that's the, the federal government um, backed uh, train system and inter interstate system. It, and, yes, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Go on, because, yeah. I think I think you've had some interesting learnings about Amtrak at, at the conference that you went to. It, it is yes. They they are they came up quite a bit at obviously being a rail conference. I mean, just I mean, it's passenger rail in in the U.S. really or interurban so you know longer distance anything other than just the suburbans around the major cities it is all amtrak and it's essentially it's america's state-owned nationalized rail operator um and um you did mention about high-speed projects that they're all just plans at the moment one in california there is one in texas um i think they are quite a way into the future um and you're right they there's still debate about whether the investment required to create build a new rail line is justifiable. And then you look at, well, the fact that we do have a huge rail network already, which is the Amtrak network. Um, Amtrak, out of interest, is split into three parts. Um, it has its very successful uh, flagship Northeast Corridor service, which runs up between Washington, D.C., um, through the major kind of... Uh, urban centers, uh, Philadelphia, uh, New York, uh, up to Boston. And that, um, that is, well, where the, a lot of the focus is, that is a kind of a, a regular hour, hourly normal rail service that you'd see such as in European countries. Um, the other parts of, rail, of, of Amtrak are not typical that you'd see generally anywhere else. Um, one area is called their long distance network that tends to be <laughs> tends to be routes that are more than 750 miles these are those trains that take two or even three days to cross the country so these famous names like you know the the southwest chief and the and the california zephyr and that's um, mostly going, for tourists right i mean that's it, there's no practical use yeah. other than that well you you say that um, that is kind of where I think it's marketed and targeted, um, and you know, the the and it's not it's quite expensive as well if you if you're traveling in one of the little cabins, so you kind of have like a, a sleeping car to yourself. 
However, these trains also serve communities that have no other transport apart from just the, the, the roads. Um, so through Railroad Nevada, for example, um, the, uh, the, the daily train each way that is passing between Chicago and um, San Francisco um, does provide a rail lifeline. Um, I've caught the rail, the train that goes between New York and Miami um, and was kind of in, uh, amazed that going down through um, the southern states, down through Georgia and northern Florida, even though it was kind of four and five a.m. in the morning, there was local traffic. There was people using that train to get to um, a few, you know, a few stops further down, to a hundred miles down, down, down the line. And I think it reflected the fact that um, it is an inexpensive means of transport uh, for for these these local and rural populations. Um, so that. That kind of is a is I suppose the romantic side of the of, of passenger rail in the north in North America. But fifty percent of Amtrak's business is their third business area, and that is what they call the the state supported group, and that's kind of everything else. So that is all relatively shorter lines up to about five hundred miles, um, typically uh, around major conurbation areas. Um, and as the name suggests, they, they are supported by the state. So, for example, the states of Texas and Oklahoma support something called the Heartland Flyer, which operates between Oklahoma City and, uh, and Fort Worth in Texas. And, uh, but the problem that Elm Track have is that most of these are just once a day. Um, they operate over the track, which are owned by freight railroads, which means that they they have to fight for the access or the train path to, to use the, the rail terminology. Um, and also they're subject to, if there's a freight train delay or freight train needs access, they will always have a priority. So service is not great. Um, and, um, you know, with only one train a day in each direction, it, it, it kind of really makes it hard to sell as a, as, as a usable service, any kind of commuting or for meetings. Um, but the good news is, and the, the conference itself kind of um, had a speaker, a guy called Ray Lang, who runs the state supported service from, from Amtrak. And he was talking about how the, um, the current administration, as part of their infrastructure bill, has uh, directed a significant amount of funding towards Amtrak. I mean, he described it as, you know, that they, they, they beyond their greatest dreams in terms of the uh, the money that's come their way. And um, I mean, just to give you an idea of the amount, $66 billion is coming towards that national rail network. Now, more than half of that is literally going to go to just kind of um, infrastructure work, um, safety kind of uh, development that needs to happen to the network, overdue signaling and tunnel work, etc. But a good proportion, 22 billion, is going towards route development. And what we're going to see um, is a lot of focus on, well, where can we bring in uh, rail service in the, in the major metro areas of the United States? Um, so they talked about Phoenix, Las Vegas, Dallas, well, most of the cities in Texas, a lot of the cities in Florida that do have rail lines there, 
they have an Amtrak service, but it's not really targeted to serving those, those cities and those cities hinterland. So I think, you know, this is a genuine effort to build um, that rail passenger service. I, I'm, from, I'm from the UK. I've experienced in, in UK and in Europe how, you know, intercity rail um, is, is by far the best way of just getting between two places um, um, compared to the car. At least it's always good to have that option. Whereas, of course, since living in the US, it's never been an option for me, um, certainly down here in Texas. So um, there was a lot of excitement, I'd say, in the room, um, not just from the Amtrak uh, kind of speaker, but also within, within a group of people that have been trying to advocate for passenger rail for many, many years. And I think for the first time, uh, you know, probably in their lifetime for a lot of them, they're actually seeing, you know, genuine government um, support for that. So, yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a long, long one answering your question about Amtrak. but. It's an insight oh, to what's happening on that side. Definitely interesting development. And it kind of, you know, segues into another because the, of course, that would have, you know, imagine um, a situation where significantly more Americans were traveling by rail that would have an impact on oil prices, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that would be a good development there. And that's, I guess, one of the big uh, developments of last week that we have yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah, there, there is just one huge potential fly in the ointment. Um, and that is that, you know, as I mentioned, apart from up in the northeast on that northeast corridor, Amtrak doesn't own the, the infrastructure. It's not their track. Um, and we have a booming freight rail industry in North America, a healthy one. Um, and of course, the health of those freight companies is their ability to keep running freight trains. So there is a bit of conflict. They don't want really any passenger trains or if they've got to have them, not too many. There's a regulatory protection for Amtrak that they are allowed to do it. But I wouldn't say that there was kind of an open arms from the freight rail companies and the infrastructure they own to kind of just have this, you know, increased passenger rail activity. Um, yeah. And that's an unusual structure, right? I mean, the airlines don't own the airports. Uh, the airlines don't own the air traffic control. Uh, trucking companies don't own the roads, but the railways do own the tracks. It's a very, very unique. They, uh, they do. And I don't think it's, am I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's like that in Europe, right? In Europe, the government they, does own the tracks. It, it, they do, well, not just Europe. I mean, kind of anywhere else in the world. Most of the world... It is all state, it's all state owned anyway. So the entire rail industry, so passenger and freight operation, as well as all of that tracks, the infrastructure is all state owned. Where there has been some kind of, where there is private sector or there's been privatization, like, like happened in the UK, for example, um, the, the track tends to still be owned by a central entity. Um, it's a bit like having a, a grid within an energy um, or, uh, industry where um, the idea is that one agency, typically part of the state, uh, the government will, will own that. And they basically sell access, you know, so you sell those train paths for people to operate on. Um, so in the UK, it's a, it's a very much a passenger rail network. The passenger rail companies kind of get the priority. Um, freight trains tend to run at night um, um, or, 
they have some dedicated kind of paths that they can use, um, such as, you know, from, from big rail hubs down to uh, the Channel Tunnel, so they can cross into Europe. But, uh, but typically, um, you know, they don't want to pay to kind of have train paths running at 7 a.m. in the morning down towards London. Um, the passenger rail companies will kind of bid to have access to those particular paths. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a structurally entirely different in, in, in the US, um, which means it needs a different approach, I think, if passenger rail is, is, is actually going to take off as a serious uh, option. Yeah, and uh, not to, not to beat a dead horse on this topic here, but the California one is that uh, the high speed rail project there. That is, uh, as, do you know if that's going to run along the freight railroad tracks, or are they actually laying down new tracks? That no, it's it, new. It, well, so high speed rail, um, and that, why that's different to other passenger rail is um, by high speed means that that's running at at least one hundred and fifty miles an hour. Um, no existing rail infrastructure in North America could support mm. that. So that has so, to, okay, yeah. to So on. it's a new build. That's why it's so expensive. And Hope Kelleher, I'd probably agree with him <laughs> before you build. But, but you don't need... So in the UK, there's a huge debate at the moment because they are trying to build a new high-speed route, high-speed route. And the question is, well, does it make sense? Why don't we just improve... The existing routes, which, you know, they go up to 120 miles an hour. Do you really need to be at 175, 200 miles an hour? Do you really need to knock off 30 minutes journey time between London and Birmingham? And that, I think, is the argument. So, you know, you, a high-speed rail is very expensive to build. And, of course, to keep it high speed, you don't want to have too many stops. So <laughs> it will just serve two places. It's literally trying to compete with the airline not with the car in, in my in my opinion uh, but th that's a much that's a different podcast <laughs> we should do yeah, right right yeah it does go i mean it more it does call attention to all of this calls attention to the uh you know the the challenge that america has in, in building physical infrastructure it's just very difficult to do that whether and that could be housing it could be airports it could be you know train tracks uh just just very difficult to do because of everything from zoning laws and environmental laws and, and a whole lots of stuff. In fact, yes. a, lot of the, a lot of the development that has happened in the U.S., a lot of what's been, you know, you, you'll, you'll hear people say, like, we don't build things in America anymore. Um, not quite. It's, it's we don't build physical things in America anymore. We build digital things. We build things you can't see, like, uh, you know, Google algorithms and um, a, lot of, a lot of the economic growth. Um, in, in more recent decades have come from that part of the economy rather than actually building physical infrastructure um, or, of yes. course, services, yeah. you know, medical educational services. But, yeah, we still build stuff. It's just sometimes you can't see it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'd also defend the freight railroads that have all this infrastructure. I mean, that's 200,000 miles of track that they're having to run. They, they build some pretty impressive bridges across major uh, waterways, um, and other kind of facilities that they're putting. There's some huge kind of projects going on. They're just not sexy and in the public eye so much. And, and not growing. That's, uh, I think, a complaint about the railroads is that there's been no growth in the past 10 to 10 years. I mean, your, your point is a good one, that they do invest a lot of money and um, build, build things. But, uh, yeah, not a, yes. not a lot of... Okay, so so listen, I, we'll finish off the rail topic with just one little bit of good news, though, and that is... It is possible to kind of build new rail 
Um, it doesn't have to be high speed to be successful. And I'd pull out Brightline, um, which is now operates between uh, Miami and West Palm Beach. And they're looking at um, extending that out to Orlando. Um, it's, it's classed as high speed, but it's, it's, not, it's not really high speed. It's just a regular kind of rail, rail route. Um, it's not as slow as Amtrak. Um, and they're also building one um, between um, the Inland Empire and, and California out to Las Vegas as well. Um, this is mainly new track. Um, there is some kind of usage of, of existing freight rail, but uh, typically they're building their own track. And uh, the model for success is that it's being funded basically because of the, the value of the land that or the increased value of land that results from putting a rail service in so you know the the property value of the around their stations which they own in miami and fort lauderdale and west palm beach um are such that that's what creates their business income and um and actually running the train is almost like a side part of that and um you know, I think that's potentially one of the, the options for getting more, more rail business, actually identifying or capturing some of the economic benefit that comes from having this, this transportation link. So. Yeah, interesting one, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, I think Jay, uh, on, on that point, it, we probably ought to kind of wrap up this edition. I mean, it's been a bumper week for, for news and information. Um, I'd certainly recommend, uh, everybody to kind of take a look at some a lot of the stories we didn't even get time to cover uh, this this week uh, not least uh, the, the, the 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 town the city that we focused on this week which was um, Harpers Ferry in um, in West Virginia definitely got an interesting history and worth looking at but um, so I think Jay will just I think finish off if you can just remind everybody kind of where where, where they can find this and, and and sign up yeah thanks Andrew so uh... Yeah, yeah, and yeah, what a busy week. <laughs> what a what a what a news loaded week. Uh, but uh, yeah, Econ Weekly, you can find it. Uh, well, first of all, you can email me at uh, j at econweekly.biz or you can go to uh, econweekly.substack.com. Okay. Oh, that's great. And Jay, thanks again for your time. We'll do this all again next week. All right, Andrew. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye.